Welcome to Season 3, Episode 22 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host Ben. Joining me today is Andras Newman. Andres is a writer. His most recent novel in English is Bariloche. Welcome back to the show, Andres. Thank you so much. It's, it's a pleasure for me. Thank you. It's a pleasure for me. It's been over a year since we last spoke. Your son, uh, Telmo, is almost, he's two, he is two, and he's walking and talking. How has the last year for you been in Granada? Well, it's been such a such a joy to to learn how to love and how to speak again my own language it's been a highly poetical process and um and of course you know raising a child during a pandemic it's even more challenging but as well uh, it was a kind of exaggeration or in hyperbole of the raising experience itself and of course, I was telling you just a, mi- a few minutes ago that I stopped writing the long novel I was supposed to be writing, confirming my fears about not being able to write during <laughs> during the first moments of, of the parenthood. But at the same time, I started writing these small texts uh, about the experience of being a father for the first time and trying you know to involve on the racing process from the very beginning and reflecting on the fact that is why we still don't have many books telling stories about the love between men and babies specifically not only about fathers and children but why there's a kind of a gap or a collective silence regarding what happens to a man to a father when we live with a small creature, what you learn, what you fear, what you get, what you lose. And I've been, you know, taking notes on, on this learning process. Um, and they, they've been just published in Spanish. The, the title is um, Umbilical, and it will be translated into English sometime in the next couple of years. Yes, I can't wait to read that because you're right. It it feels like something that is such a maternal thing to write about the love between a mother and a child, but having writing about fathers and, and a child, I think is amazing. Exactly, because you know, far beyond the, the, the biological frame, which is not the most important thing in my opinion, and for our time, I think that both the distribution of roles in our families, you know, what we could call patriarchy, but as well the tradition, our literary tradition, don't teach us to to the men, to the men, I mean, to write about this part of our lives, which is so important, moving and revealing, uh, but we seem to have, you know, delegated not only you know the racing duties and pleasures to to uh, mothers but we have uh, delegated to the literary responsibility to to think about these subjects from our point of view which is a uh, uh, different um and and it it's very moving to me to to think about the idea that 
while our son Telmo is beginning to put names to things, I'm beginning to put names to the things I've been talked during my life and all the, you know, the horrible mistakes that usually uh, we can find in, in, in male education. So in that way, I feel like my, uh, our son's disciple. So this is a book, not about what the father has to teach to the child, but much on the contrary, is all, all that the, the baby has been teaching us. And of course, I wrote it, you know, because I've been always interested in the hidden part of our memory. There are two kind of problems with memory. You know, you know, the conventional one is what you forget. Memories you are supposed to have and you, with time, lose. But there's a second uh, mode that I'm very interested in is that th those things we are not ready to remember. We will never remember. And those things are mainly in our early childhood. We don't remember, you know, to be living inside our mothers, which is a <laughs> amazing thing to forget. Mm. Inhabiting someone as important as our mothers. And that's a universal experience we've all, all had, all the living people has had. And still, we don't remember it. We don't remember our birth, how we learn to talk, to walk, um, how we learned about other people's bodies and our own body. And all these, we will never remember. And I wrote it just to, you know, to be sure that our son will get at least a bit, small piece of that uh, forgotten territory. So in a way, uh, in a way, uh, living with a small child gives you a powerful input about the future, but as as well about the hidden past. And sec and secondly, um, all the the things that I thought were solved in terms of my personal memory exile, the losing of my mother when she was very young. Um, the foreignness, so to speak, that I've always had in Spain, being par partially Argentinian, uh, all, all of those things that I thought I had processed to some extent, our baby gave them back to me new. Mm -hmm. Because now my son is just about to discover that his father is a foreigner. <laughs> our son is is just about to discover that I don't have a mother and and so he doesn't have a paternal grandmother either. Mm -hmm. So I'm I've been reorphaned, so to speak, by my son. And that has put me thinking uh, about so many things. Mm. So interesting. I'm gonna ask you more about that. Um because I think I found quite a lot of that the same experience uh when i had my oh, I'm glad children to, yeah i'm glad to hear that yeah because i lost my mother very close to the birth of my second daughter actually like nine months before to the day to be honest um yeah and yes i feel like that there's there's a certain like level of 
of loss and gain when you have children, especially, you know, around those times. Exactly. No, and I'm, I said I'm glad because, uh, of course, uh, a loss is a very painful thing. But uh, I, I find some kind of joy mm. in talking about these subjects that are apparently uncomfortable or, I mean, it's the mystery of poetry in a way. Some of the most universal and shared experiences are not very very much talked about or written about. Of course, there are books about losing um, parents, but there are not many books about what a, a father feels when a child is born, and not so many books about the contradiction between the deep forever company you find in a child and the strange solitudes that are resurface that that resurface in in your remote memory mm -hmm. uh in their company too and i think it's a beautiful subject to explore mm -hmm. israeli speaking definitely it's have you have you have you sorry have you told about i mean your mom and your family i mean i mean have you become a kind of narrator of your mother since then? Yeah, I think that's what people do. I think that that stories about people like your parents, especially, you do end up making them into stories and you do end up having to tell your children about, you know, who they were. And because even my older daughter, she was, I think, one when she passed away. Like even with her, she asked lots of questions and she wants to know, you know, where she was from and what she did and who she was, because she also doesn't have that experience of having a Eternal grandmother, so. And then you can see the power of narrative. Mm. Because to us, our mothers were living creatures who then were dead and are remembered through stories. But for mm. our children, they have never existed as bodies or real people. Mm. They are just kind of ghosts of, of literary characters. So their entire existence, I mean, our uh beloved dead ones and their entire knowledge the, the, our children knowledge about them depends on the stories so it's a it's a matter of life or death mm. to tell the stories about these people we loved and don't exist really for for uh, some of our more loved people um so i find that it's a kind of a joy a responsibility and uh, and a strange surprise to have to turn our moms into crucial characters mm. of our daily family narrative. And, and I think that has much to do with the material with of which this the, the literature, the writing is done. Something is kind of ghostly, imaginary, um, entirely invented in a way not verifiable. Uh, I can't pronounce that word, but I, I hope you understood. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, verifiable. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, deals with a highly emotional material, deals with life and death, and help us to exist, so mm. to speak. In this case, literally. That's right. Well, speaking of ghosts, it's well after midnight in Granada. Lorca is walking around, stalking the city. Do you want to tell us about the magic of that city, especially at midnight? 
yeah, it's a dark uh, magic uh, as far as Lorca is concerned, because as you as you know, um, Lorca was born and killed here, and he has never been found. Uh, in part because, I mean, nobody found the body, but in part because there hasn't been a real will, institutional official will to search for him enough. So it's a kind of a trauma here in this city. And at the same time, everything is impregnated with Lorca's presence. There are museums, streets, monuments, parks. When I arrived here, being a child, uh, there was almost nothing officially uh, linked to Lorca. In the last few decades, that changed a lot, luckily. Um, and I think about him a lot when I when I stroll around the city, and and I think as well about his um, his relationship with with the Spanish tradition, with the music, which is something that uh, is very close to my family. I, I my family were was full of musicians, and I always think about my grandmother. Because, uh, funnily enough, my grandmother, who was Argentinian, was platonically in love with Lorca. Mm -hmm. She was old enough to witness one of the very first um, um, performances of his uh, theater plays in Buenos Aires. Lorca, Lorca spent a, a year almost, quite a few months in Buenos Aires when he was like 30 years old or something, um, maybe a bit more, maybe 33, 34. And uh, my grandmother happened to go to the theater for the first time in her life in one of these shows. And apparently Lorca was there. So she fell in love with theater and Lorca at the very same time. And she spent all her life calling Lorca her boyfriend as a joke. And she used to have pictures of her family plus Lorca in the bookshelves. This is in Buenos Aires. So it came as a surprise when my family exiled and my parents chose Lorca City as our place of residence. Uh, and you can imagine how emotional it was for my grandmom to come here to rejoin his never met Lorca's ghost and, and in, in a way, it made sense to come here and walk uh, next to my, the imaginary, my, my grandmother's imaginary boyfriend. <laughs> All right. We should move on to Bariloche. It is finally out in English from Open Letter, translated by Robin Myers. You wrote this book more than 20 years ago. And there's a beautiful synchronicity about this book because you're telling me that a lot of this book is set where you grew up in um, Telmo in Buenos Aires and you have named your son Telmo. But do you want to tell us about writing this book, how old you were at the time and where you were living when you wrote it? I was very young. I was around 20 years old. It wasn't the first novel I had written or tried to write, to be more precise, but it was the first time I felt that it might work, it might make some sense. So I didn't feel 
as embarrassed of this book as the previous ones. So I, I decided to publish it just in case. Um, and it turned out to be my, my first uh, novel. And what allowed me to, to meet Bolaño just by chance, uh, because he read the book and apparently he liked it and, and it was extremely generous to me. We didn't live in the same city, so so in a way I'm very fond of this uh, little novel, Bariloche, because without this book I would have probably never met Bolaño. Uh, so that's enough to, to be fond of this book. And besides, you can find in this uh, novel, in spite of how long ago it was written, a couple of things that I can still uh, feel relate to. Um, the interest, my interest in finding beauty in non-conventional spots or or spaces. In this case, Bariloche tells the story of two garbage collectors in San Telmo, my native neighborhood. And indeed, we chose that name for our son because of the neighborhood, because it's the only way he has a story uh, to build a link with the other shore of the other shore of, of the world. He's totally Spaniard uh, so far, but he will someday maybe ask about his name and then he will get the story. So these garbage collectors um, um, drive across San Telmo in the night in the south of Buenos Aires. And one of them, Demetrio, is very fascinated with the content of the junk bags. And he apparently finds or tries to find some meaning, some kind of rotten small revelation on, inside these bags. And he feels that he can learn about the city and the people more inspecting these bags than talking to them. And I can feel uh, close to, to, to that faith in that literature works uh, inventing beauty rather than identifying it or pointing it out. Um, and then, of course, there's this love about my other South. I live in the South Spain, but I come from the very South of the world in, in Argentina. And um, in, the, in the time I wrote this book, I was not only very young, but uh, there was no internet. And this is very important to, to, to point out because back then my family or me had, had no money to buy our tickets to travel to Buenos Aires. And I felt very far away in all senses. And the only way I had to uh, walk again those streets was inventing a story and making sure that this, this story would last for a couple of years at least so, so that I could be back there. And I wrote it with a care and love about small irrelevant details, not irrelevant, but, you know, secondary mm -hmm. details in, in, in this neighborhood. And nowadays I would, you know, maybe just Google it or, or you know, searching for pictures or videos, but then every adjective or every small dirty detail in a corner was the only way 
to make them present. I'm not, I don't mean it's a very detailed novel because it's a short novel. It's about the attitude toward images. I could feel that there was a kind of desperation to hold to smells, visions, um, and, and even the touch of, of things in the street, that it was a way to put my body back there. And, and I felt moved when I had to reread it and revise it for a new edition that came out a few years ago or just when we were working on the translation in English because I was immediately transferred back to those years when every single small detail of my birth native neighborhood would make me happy enough or moved enough to keep on writing. Yeah, I remember when we spoke last time, we spoke a lot about being a foreigner and being somebody who reminisces about the place they came from, but always moving. But in this book, you know, we talk about Bariloche a lot, which I had, no, I had not heard of the place until I read this book. Um, and the character in this book is longing for Bariloche, even to the extent that he tries to put together puzzles and things like of this place. Can you tell us a bit about um, your experience yeah. of Bariloche? Yeah, well, I'm glad you you raised this this part of the book because Bariloche is a very touristical place and everybody knows it in Argentina. But I used this word of this place, very aware that outside Argentina, uh, very few people would recognize this word. So it sounds invented. And it looks like an invented or mythical place. But in fact, it is a real place. And many people go there for vacation or forever. It's in South Argentina, in the Patagonia. It's a very beautiful um, area full of lakes and mountains. And it's very beautiful and very cold. But no, almost no one lives there. It's just a holiday place. So... I suddenly thought that it would be a nice uh, counterbalance to think about these beautiful uh, spots, these lakes, these mountains, and the puzzles that are made with them. Because in Argentina, most of puzzles show pictures of this area of the Patagonia. And I thought, well, if there's a character who is trying to find some poetry or some beauty in the middle of the junk, maybe it would make sense for him to also find more and more disturbing the traditional landscapes, which everybody loves. So there's a kind of exchange between the conventional beauty of these landscapes and the unconventional poetical radiance of the junk. And bit by bit you can see in the novel these two opposite areas of the world exchanging places you know the the, the garbage seems to be illuminated and the ideal landscapes get get more and more uh, darker but uh but I've been to Bariloche of course a few times when I was a child and I've got the most beautiful memories of it 
the first cats I slept with were there. I remember that, uh, sleeping with a cat. And that's why there, there are one or two cats playing around here and there in the novel as if it were the same cats that I never said goodbye to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I come from a very big city with no nature around at all. I mean, Buenos Aires is many things, but essentially not a wood or a lake. We've got this huge, horrible river, mm. but even that is kind of a hidden because the, the city doesn't leave uh, uh, to, to look at it. So what I mean is for me, nature, the big traditional nature was a kind of a mystery when I was a boy from Buenos Aires. And I feel I discovered uh, green nature there in Bariloche when I was a child. So I thought that it might be interesting to work with the idea of migration too, because I was an exiled child back then when I wrote the novel. I'm still ex- exiled child in, 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 some, in some sense. So I thought it was interesting, not only talking about my native country, but as well, including some kind of displacement in the character, even if the character is Argentinian, but he changes uh, from one place to another very different place. He moves to Buenos Aires when he's a teenager, more or less at the same age uh, I arrived to in, in Granada. And um, so he feels a foreigner in Buenos Aires. The same way I started feeling foreigner when I left Buenos Aires. So there's a kind of complementary uh, sy- symbolic uh, relationship between this character uh, and the situation of my family. And I was lastly interested in the puzzle, not only as an object, because this character, you know, plays with at nights, he uh, makes these puzzles with the landscapes of Bariloche. But the the, the novel itself, it's a a puzzle. Every chapter is a small text and you need to put all these pieces together for the novel to make sense. So it's a reflection on fragments in all all kinds of senses, you know, fragments, the fragments that people drop on on a junk bag, but as well, the fragments of your memory, the, the small fragmented recollections we all have from our childhood, and as well, the fragments of the book, of the box full of pieces of a puzzle, and the book itself uh, replicates the structure of a puzzle, changing voices, spaces, and times mm-hmm. uh, in every single small chapter. It was such a pleasure reading this book because having read all of your fiction in English. Um, this book just felt like uh, something that I feel echoes all of your other books, like Traveler of the Century and Talking to Ourselves. And Fracture. Oh, that's interesting. Like, I feel like the, the, this concept of, of being a foreigner and longing and memory and, mm. and switching perspectives and puzzles, I feel like uh, this kind of prefigures your other works really nicely. Oh, uh, I have, I had never thought about it. You know, uh, I don't have the perspective to realize, but now you mention it. Yes, the, the, the migration and the foreigner sensation has always been there. The changes, the switching 
shifting perspectives. Mm. That's something, yeah, you're right. And, um, and in a way, there's some kind of darkness on this book, mm. which is, of course, the darkness of youth. You know, you, when you are young, you overperform your dark side. But it is as well a kind of river plate tradition. There's mm. a very specific kind of darkness uh, in this novel, which I can recognize as, as a tradition from Argentina and Uruguay, certain type of atmosphere. And these atmospheres I've been always going back to in different bits of my books, I think. For instance, I don't know if you might remember Fracture, the novel yeah, Fracture. Of course. Well, Fracture takes place with, among other cities in Buenos Aires. Mm. And on the ending, a strange character appears. It's a journalist who apparently has been researching about the characters mm. who appear on the novel. And this these man is from Buenos Aires and he walks around the city while it's raining and it's a very dark, cold night. And now I come to think about it, that kind of dark, rainy Buenos Aires is exactly the same Buenos Aires that dominates Bariloche and gets the opposite area, the opposite atmosphere in, in Bariloche and the Patagonia. And, and it's, it's um, as well, I, I mentioned this to you before. I don't remember if before or after <laughs> we, we started recording, but I'm, I'm, I'm fond of this little book because without it, I would have never met Bolaño. Mm. And only, only with that, it made sense to, to publish Bariloche. But, but as well, it's been a very interesting process to read the translation that Robin Myers has done. She's a brilliant poet and wonderful, very exquisite translator. And it's been fascinating to me because this little novel, Bariloche, is full of small tricks in Spanish, small uh, poetical strategies. For instance, the voice of the, the nature's voice there are different voices, right? But one mm. of them is a kind of nature talking about its own appearance. Uh, and these very short bits are written in verse. I mean, they are in prose, but the inner rhythm, they have meter, classical mm. meter. Because I thought, well, if the nature spoke, it might maybe use, you know, classical meter. Um, and Robin uh, respected that and, and uh, put it into English meters. And all the different layers of language that I tried to put back then in the novel, she tried to, to replicate or do something similar in English. So in a way, it was like witnessing a poetical process in English. And, and I enjoyed it very much because it was a novel deliberately written in a kind of poetical prose. I was writing lots of poetry back then and, and 
and I felt the the the, the joy and the and the will to write in prose and verse at the same time. And I thought that would be maybe difficult to do in in a translation. And I was surprised by how um, naturally and accurately was done by Robin. So I, I wanted to, to mention her very specifically because I, I think the translation is excellent. Yeah, it reads beautifully. It, it is so poetic. And as you said before, finding the beauty in, in the rubbish in this book and um, all of the things that he does in this book, all of the kind of bad relationships he has are just translated so beautifully. And as it goes along, I feel like the the garbage that he discovers gets even more poetic uh, through the book. Yeah, exactly. It's like he feels in love with garbage. Mm. And he feels in love with all the ways that he can relate to garbage it has it does have a political layer but it's not very explicit but mm. it's more metaphoric you know that what do we do with with all the waste which in the 90s was not a fashion at all you know mm. writing about this but from from now i think the novel can be read like that like whose fault is the garbage who should be in charge of it and above all, um, why do we discard pieces of our lives that sometimes are more meaningful than the things we do keep? Mm. And and one of the collectors is a kind of dark detective or of garbage, as if he noticed the value of what is inside these bags. And at the same time, he feels so bad about himself and about his own life because it's a kind of a uh, failure. He feels he's a failure. So in a way, <laughs> he feels like an extension of garbage. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it's a kind of, you know, um, trying to poetically recreate uh, a certain state of depression in the character and uh, and he's in love too with with knights, not romantic knights, you know, or mm. <laughs> or playboy knights, or you know, the, 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 but knights when not, there's nobody there, mm. and the streets are ugly or damp or uh, cold, and he feels more at home in those situations than in his own house, but his companion. Uh, El Negro is a very different guy. So in a way, I was thinking about the kind of uh, Quixotean couple. Mm. Um, of course, uh, <laughs> there's the only thing you can do to compare both novels, of course. <laughs> but I mean, I was thinking about a couple mm. of characters who travel together, in this case, not in La Mancha mm. or any mythical territory, but just a few streets in Buenos Aires, but I was th thinking about the contrast between them. You know, one of them is like big and the other one is slim. Mm -hmm. One of them is kind of, um, um, how do you say this? Uh, um, cheerful and optimistic in spite of all. Mm -hmm. and, and the other is dark, serious, not much talkative. And they form a strange 
partnership um, very complementary and I was interested in exploring the, the twisted friendship mm. or relationship uh, between the two of them too. One of the really interesting things I think about this book as well is that all the books I've read about Buenos Aires are about chaos and about hustle and bustle and the busyness of the city. And this book almost exclusively takes takes place during the quiet nights um, in the rain. And we don't really get that uh, sense that it's taking place in this massive city. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a different take on Buenos Aires. Mm-hmm. We've read so many things about Buenos Aires and good things and interesting books that I was searching for uh, on the one hand personal side of the city and this neighborhood San Telmo is a very personal place for me Mm. but at the same time a one that allowed me to keep keep me far away from the uh, cliches of Buenos Aires I mean I mean there's no tango Mm. here Uh, there's Argentinian garbage and um in Buenos Aires, this is uh, nevertheless very typical of Buenos Aires because Buenos Aires, and especially a few years ago, it never slept um, some shops or some small cafes are open 24 hours uh, a day. In Granada, that's impossible. Where I live is a small city and at night everything is closed. But in Buenos Aires, you you can find a few uh, lit corners mm. that help you to, uh, to to go across the night. Um, so in a way, this character, this nighty character is very representative of, cert- of certain walkers in Buenos Aires. Mm. Only that, except for he's actually working at that hour. But he feels, yeah, he feels very linked to the small hours you say in english small yeah. hours at, at night in buenos aires wh- when almost everything is still and so this is a poetical approach too because when everything is almost everything is still the small movements don't go unnoticed in, mm. in, in unlike you know all the chaos and the noise happening at the same time Mm-hmm. He is like a kind of detective of small movements or small changes. And the only time you can get that kind of specific attention in a city, in a big city like Buenos Aires, is after midnight in a working day. Mm. One of the things that I didn't notice initially about this novel, uh, because I read it uh, electronically and I recently received the hard copy and the cover is like, it's astoundingly beautiful, but until I received the actual hard copy, I didn't realize the cover is actually a whole lot of garbage bags, but it looks so beautiful in the cover. And that's kind of, I think what you're getting at here with the finding the beauty in in the ugliness, I suppose. That's absolutely what we intended. Mm. Um, If you don't uh, look look at it closely, it seems to have... uh, strange interesting texture mm. as a kind of contemporary piece of design <laughs> but if you look at it uh, uh, more attentively you will see that what's in the background there are just 
uh, bags, black bags full of garbage. Uh, and at the same time, they are all to get put together in the background and they form a kind of puzzle, so to mm -hmm. speak. I'm I'm jealous you have a copy because I don't. Can you show it to me, even though in a podcast no one can see it, but we can see it at least. Oh, yeah. that's great. Yeah. And with a yellow on the letters. That's it. Yeah. So you can you, you get just the texture of the bags mm -hmm. and imprinted on them, you see this beautiful yellow um, writing, these shiny letters that partially hide what's uh, more more what's more deeply there. Just a lie that distracts you for a moment from all the junk awaiting for us. And mm. in a way, your city works like that too, like that cover. Mm. Another beautiful touch that Open Letter have put into this book is having that beautiful piece that Roberto Bologna wrote about you as a prologue to the book, which was translated by Natasha Wimmer and was in between parentheses, his, the essay collection they put together. But having that at the beginning, I feel like is such a beautiful synergy with this book coming out, you know, almost 25 years after you published it. Yeah, I, it makes me um, happy and sad at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, it makes me happy because it reminds me of the friendship that began thanks to this little book. Um, but at the same time, it's kind of a kind of anniversary of of Roberto's death. Mm -hmm. He died twenty years ago now. Um, so when I read that piece, which is just a short piece he very generously wrote when, when the book came out, uh, I still don't know why he did it. Because, I mean, we didn't know each other back then. Uh, back then, uh, he just did it because he was very supportive uh, with young writers. He was a migrant. He had been a migrant uh, young man two decades uh, ago. And for some reason, and, and we, we both loved poetry even more than anything else in literature. So maybe he could identify the few elements in common between his youth, not the great Mathieu Bolaño, but just his youth when he was beginning to write. Mm -hmm. And uh, the young boy I was when I was trying to write my first novel. So, um, um, and in that piece, um, he he mentions um, a few elements that I still think they are like important to to read the novel. But above all, when I read that piece, when I read it in English for for the first time, um, I could tell that I was so lucky to get to meet him and know him for at least for two or three years. And, and it was like an interrupted friendship. I didn't know he was so ill. I didn't know he had some kind of health issue. He, he used to mention uh, here and now and then, not taking it too seriously, at least with me. We, we weren't, you know, very close friends, just kind of friends. Um, so I never said goodbye to him, but I realized he was saying goodbye to me, goodbye to me, and to many other people. In the meantime, mm. so so I had witnessed a farewell without knowing it. 
without knowing it. That's what I meant. And in a way, I learned a lot from that experience. And, and I said to myself, well, I will try to make sure next time that I say goodbye to things every day, just in mm. case, you know. Um, um, so he taught me a lesson, not only in literature. Well, he, he taught me different lessons. Of course, the writing, which is overwhelming uh, in, in his case. But he taught me about um, the power, how powerful can a short period of time be? Like he knew he hadn't much time left mm -hmm. and he wrote very ambitious uh, books in the meantime while saying goodbye or fearing he might die. I mean, he wasn't sure, but he knew his condition was serious. So he, instead of, you know, uh, trying to write uh, quick books or easy books or not writing at all, he tried to to write more difficult books in his life while he hadn't much time left. And this paradox of what you can do when you know the, the value of time, it was a massive learning for me. Too late, I'm afraid. I didn't understand this back then, but when he died and of course you know the the um, the melancholic love that all of us tend to start to feel when we when we find ourselves not that young you know like and, and with my child it's the same you know i've been a father you know after 40 years old and every time i say good morning to my son that good morning is secretly translated in my head as goodbye just in case and that's really painful in a way but it's very moving as well and uh, and that makes you sure that you make the most of every single gesture or word uh, and i think that that's a way of writing too like putting value into things like being thankful to things and to attention itself through writing. And I think that's something that Bolaño did all the last years of his life. And I try to apply uh, those principles uh, in my writing uh, as far as I'm capable of, of course, with all my limitations. I just want to ask you a tiny bit more about your friendship with Bolaño, because he's just such a fascinating figure. But how did you actually end up meeting him and what was he like as a person? <laughs> the first time I met him, I didn't because he didn't show up. <laughs> it was very much like him. Um, this novel allowed me to, to meet him just because, I mean, it was just chance. He had won a prize in 1998 with one of his masterpieces, Los Detectives Salvajes. Mm -hmm. in, in English, I think it's uh, Savage. Savage. Yeah. That's it. Um, so he was meant to be the jury the, the year after that. And I had sent Innocent of Me, my little novel to this prize, um, not hoping to win, but hoping for the publishing house to notice the book when I lose 
you know i knew i was losing but i said well maybe you know some someone in the publishing house will you know notice there's this small strange book and maybe can if not publishing it which i wasn't expecting either maybe if they like him a bit they might send me a letter explaining why they reject it or what's wrong in the novel you know i i was aiming to get a report a proper report on the novel and i was surprised to to hear a few months after i hadn't hadn't even read bolaño and i heard and i heard that this chilean writer had liked the book and uh, had insisted insisted on on you know giving it uh, not not the first place, but the second, a kind of a runner-up, you know, so, so someone else won, but they still published uh, my book after that, like, uh, uh, yeah, finalist or runner-up title. And then there was the ceremony of the awards, right? And they invited me. And in the meantime, I had booked all Bolaño's books because they told me about this and I wanted to know who this half Chilean, half Spanish guy was. And I had fallen in love with his books. And I was very excited to meet him. It's important to point out that I live in South Spain, in Andalusia, and he lived in Catalonia, which is kind of northeast, right? So it is almost a thousand kilometers. And in in that moment in my life, I hadn't even the money to buy the tickets of the train or something. So it was special for me to be in Barcelona in this ceremony. It wasn't something that I could get easily uh, to. Uh, and everybody was expecting for Bolaño to, to attend and he didn't. So um, I was even more intrigued about him. Um, and then... I was wondering if someday I would get to meet him when, you know, one day the publishing house sent me this uh, article he had written about the book without even have, without meeting or talking or anything, just out of generosity, as I said. So when this happened, I had to talk to him to say him thank you. And maybe if I was lucky to have a coffee someday. So I got his phone number and I and I rang him up. And he picked the phone himself that day. I was lucky. And he started to talk immediately without even saying, how did you get my number? He said just, oh, it's you. And he talked for two or three hours about anything, nothing, everything. I don't know. But he spoke very fluently and he was... so very funny, very um, sarcastic, and a, a mixture between, strange mixture between compassion and cruelty. Just as a good narrator needs to be when uh, approaching things, right? Like a, um, a kind of, um, how do you say this? Um, ruthless side, mm. but a very compassionate, compassionate side at the same time and um, he loved to talk on the phone I mean he was like a telephonic poet he, uh, I mean he used to improvise syntax through the phone and you could tell he was uh, entering a kind of verbal trance mm. 
talking about no matter what. Actually, he has a book of short stories called Llamadas Telefónicas, phone calls. So for him, it was a literary genre in a way. And one day I, I went to Barcelona, he invited me for, for lunch. And after that, this turned out to be a coffee, this turned out to be a dinner, turned out to be a whiskey. Well, I drank whiskey, he didn't because he was ill, mm -hmm. so he couldn't drink any whiskey. And I spent only 24 hours at Bolaño's home mm -hmm. playing chess and reading Greek poets. I remember that very well. And trying to find if there was a bad poem by Borges. I remember <laughs> that very vividly. He said, there are no bad poems by Borges. And I was too young, so I replied, everybody's got bad poems. <laughs> Even Borges, which was very cheeky of me. And he said, that's impossible. I said, well, that's not impossible. I mean, everybody has bad poems. And he said, okay, so you show me a bad poem by Borges. So we picked all the books, you know, and he, I remember how he was defending every single verse of every single poem, you know, saying why it was there. And it was like a masterclass in poetry. And very late in, in the evening or in, in, in the morning already, he put me to bed. He said, good night. He turned off the light. And I never saw him again. Wow. Because because at you know, a few hours later he was already sleeping because he used to sleep very late. And I got up, I had breakfast with his with his wife Carolina and his his son Lautaro. He was like 10 years old back then, I think. And I got the train back to Barcelona. Bolaño uh, didn't live in Barcelona, but in Gerona in the in, in the uh, in another province, I I got the train back. I went back to Granada, and we we kept on talking on the phone and exchanging emails. But I never got back to to his home. So it was my first and only visit to Bolaño. So I saw him only once in all my life, but we talked to the phone for for you know hundreds of times, and and uh, and I still read his emails as if they were part of his literary work. Wow. Beautiful experience. That is a beautiful experience. One of the, I guess this is a, the thing that I, just that story reminded me of is your book, Talking to Ourselves, which in a way I sense that like that father-son relationship where you're saying, you know, he's saying goodbye to his father as well. I feel like that yeah. kind of blends so nicely into what you were saying before about, you know, talking to your son in the morning and, and also, you know, this relationship Bologna had with his son. My God, you're right. Yes, I think you're totally right. I hadn't thought about it. Um, and you know, when you are, you belong to an exiled family, uh, links with certain people, particularly people who has lost their roots too, become a bit like a family. Mm. It's, it's not an essential family or um, a traditional family, but it's a symbolic family. And, and yes, Bolani was like a kind of an elder brother figure. Uh, being myself, I mean, I have a younger brother, but I never had uh, an older brother. Mm. And uh, Bolani was somewhere in the middle between my father 
and an imaginary older brother. And so, yeah, yeah, um, it might have have might have uh, this nuance of family. He, I, I knew he had exile after the coup d'état of Pinochet, just like we we um, left our country uh, right before the coup d'état in Argentina. Part of my family had been kidnapped, you know, or persecuted during the the early years of the last dictatorship in the 70s. And that's the same decade when Bolaño had to leave Chile. I mean, he left Chile to go to Mexico, as everybody who read Detective Salvajes knows. But he went back to Chile uh, just in time to witness the horrible things that were happening mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning of Pinochet's dictatorship and coup. And he saved his life. Um uh, I mean, for dear life, and and uh, he f- flew away forever to Spain. So I think that was floating in the air too. Even though we almost never mentioned this when we were together, it was everything implicit, implicit. And I think that the deepest things that we do have in common as human beings, sometimes they are told by literature. They are silent in person, but told by literature. Uh, but most of the times uh, are unconscious links. And now I come to think about it. Yes, that was a part of, of my relationship with Polanyo. And as for talking to ourselves, yes. Um, you know, I lost my mom when I was very young, but my father lost his father when he was quite young. Mm-hmm. So I was raised with an acute feeling, not only of loss, but how easy it is to to lose mm-hmm. your loved ones. It's like an, the imminency of loss. And I think that puts you writing very often. Uh, what I mean is that since a very uh, young age, not only I found in literature a way to bring back things that disappeared, or were forgotten, or were never remembered, but as well a way to say goodbye in advance. Mm. And this kind of futurist melancholy is an important part of my link with literature in general, I think. And you can find a lot lot of that in talking to ourselves, I think, because there's this father knowing he won't be there uh, for for much longer, and trying to build uh, a link with his son, um, just in case. And I think, well, we only love things when when we lose them, and this is a very simple and stupid truth that we try to to fight fight against with during all our lives, mm-hmm. not making the same mistake. But since nobody is able to avoid this mistake, we have writing and reading as a way of acknowledging importance of things with through language and, and narrative. That's the only way I know to do it properly. I wish I could, you know, have this link with things without writing, but I'm I'm not able. Hmm. All right. 
What a great answer. I don't even remember what the question was. <laughs> <laughs> Me either, to be honest. <laughs> All right. Well, it's almost two o'clock over there. So I think I should probably ask you what books are you currently reading or do you recommend for our audience? Well, I brought this this pile of books, which is literally the pile that I've got, the two piles I, I've got in my desk. I didn't choose them or, 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 you know, or selected them. So very randomly, I will see what we get. Okay, so I've got a book about collective care. Which, which has been written by a, by a group of philosophers and sociologists. The, I mean, it's re, it was written in English originally. And the title is The Care Manifesto, The Politics of Interdependence. Hmm. Um, and, you know, when you're raising a child uh, away from your native country, you need to think a lot about this, <laughs> especially in a pandemic, right? When, hmm. when the bubble of vulnerability gets even more uh, uh, intense, so to speak. Then I'm reading this Renato Cisneros diary of fatherhood. Algún día te mostraré el desierto. Uh, I mean, roughly into English, someday I will show you the desert, which is a diary he kept while uh, awaiting for his child and, and, and the first uh, moments of of the of the raising uh, the the learning of how to raise a child and as i told you in the, in the beginning i'm very intrigued by the fact that we have so so few uh, books very few books on the love that a man can feel for for a baby um, and i wish we had more and this is one of the few i could get in spanish at least um, I, I also, I'm also finishing Las Malas, which is quite well-known book now, the Camilo Sosa Villada. Um, she's this trans, uh, famous writer born in Argentina and her prose is, um, poetical, but uh, as well, like honest and talks about, I mean, the life of of people who were trans in an era where no one cared about them or write, wrote about them. I'm reading as well a small novel by Armonia Somers, the Uruguayan um, writer uh, a century ago, which is, she, she's a great writer and she's being reissued. Um, I'm... I have this book by Mariana Enriquez on tombs and cemeteries. It's not one of her story collections or her famous novels. It's just mm -hmm. about one of her obsessions, cemeteries. And it, she's a friend of mine. And she talked to me so many, so many times about cemeteries that I love to have this book with me. It's wow. like having her by my side telling me these stories, but more carefully. I would love um, to read that. Because yeah. So I read Our Share of Night, which was just, it's just been published in English and it's just yeah. such a great book. 
yeah, yeah, it is. And uh, well, this is like a collection of essays and articles on different cemeteries in different parts of the world. I understand this book was kind of, um, uh, um, oh no, this not this one. I meant this one, okay. It's a French uh, rabbi, mm -hmm. Delphine Horvilleur, who wrote a book called in French, let me see, Vivre avec nos morts, uh, that is, living with our dead ones. And she tells her experiences on, you know, being near to people who have just lost someone as a part of the rabbi mission mm -hmm. and all the things she learned by some other people's pain and how she could explore her own pain and her own thoughts on death thanks to this strange job of, you know, comforting griefing people mm. and I walked this book in Argentina by the way and I ha have to tell you something which is funny because I'm showing you books that no one can see because this is a podcast and now we're gonna double the bet <laughs> or triple the bet just like poetry do because I'm gonna tell you about the smell of the books yeah so so ladies and gentlemen this is a podcast with smell because there's this bookshop called Mandolina in Buenos Aires and they put perfume in every single book they sell you. Kind of lavanda, you say in English? Yeah, lavanda, yeah. Lavanda. Very, very subtle. Yeah. You know, it's not a strong perfume. And they they put it especially in the books they sell. So I'm I'm smelling <laughs> these pages. Uh, that have traveled from Argentina to Spain, thanks to writing and death. Mm. I'm I'm reading this book on motherhood by Violeta Gorodischer called Desmadres, about the experience of being a mother. Because as we said, since not many fathers are writing still about this, they are beginning to write about this, but not enough. So I'm learning from the mothers who talk about how you know, combining writing and and. Uh, taking care of a baby or whatever. Uh, and as well, Jorge Volpi's last novel, Partes de Guerra, yeah. I think it's not published in English. Mm. Another Mexican writer, this is a female writer in this case, Elena Garro, Recuerdo, Los Recuerdos del Porvenir. This is a classic I've always wanted to read. Uh, she was part of the boom generation, but not acknowledged back, back then. And she's now being reread. Um, what else? What else? What else? Um, Judy Herrera's book of short stories that it's just been published in English, I heard. Yeah. Diez Planetas, mm. Ten Planets. Um, and what else? Oh, <laughs> and the last one. It's a brief history of uh, philosophy yeah. by Gilbert <laughs> by, uh, Hotois who is a uh, Hotois, it's a French philosopher. Um, since I don't have time to, you know, to study properly philosophy, I read uh, summary books mm. just to know if I get something. Uh, hopefully that will teach me to, to be a better father. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not sure about that, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs>
This is all the, the, the books I had just with me. Of course, some of them uh, I'm just halfway through and some of them I'm just about and some of them I'm finishing them. But all of them, I think they are interesting in, in some way. Do you finish all your books when you read? No, I, it's too much. I have so many. Um, so sometimes I do and sometimes I come back to them later and sometimes I leave them unfinished for a long time and you know they're in the they're in the pile to to come back to i think that makes sense because you know our life is full so full of unfinished stories mm. and businesses that it's not real to you know to have a complete relationship with all of our books mm. i mean because i know some people that can't stand not finishing a book even even though they don't like it mm. But I'm very much like you. Like uh, I read many books at the same time yeah. and uh, not always finish them, all of them. And uh, the bad thing about it is you don't focus as much as you would with only one book. Mm -hmm. But the bad part, the, the good part is that sometimes you find strange links and bridges between books mm. that by luck you put two different two different books uh to set a dialogue you know it's like the more random authors start to talking to have to a conversation yeah. talking to each other yes mm. yes in a in a strange way uh it's just like when you you know put your books in order by alphabetical order mm -hmm. and you find that there are two authors very unlikely to be one close to another mm -hmm. and they are just because of 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 the alphabetical order and then you feel that they, they might know each other better mm. and get to be friends or good enemies and mm. and this is uh, pretty much the same so i like to jump from one to another just in case um i discover a secret uh secret tunnel yeah. between i don't know the Me Ra french rabbi and mm. a mexican novelist <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Before I let you go, I just want to ask, so with your with the novel you were working on before your son was born, so how's the progress going with it now that he's two? It's been a long story because I was working at Good Pace before mm. our son was born and I had at least half of a new novel. Not a huge, but a rather long novel. Mm. Um and I was fearing not to be able to finish it when my son was born. And I was right. <laughs> but uh, but uh, so I stopped and, and I don't regret it because uh, I had more important things to do then. But at the same time, I started to write about him, as I told you, um, and even wrote this very small uh, book called Umbilical on him. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, a book stopped and a new uh, unintended, unplanned book was open suddenly. Just this happens a lot with you know, uh, don't you think about with motherhood or parenthood that some things stopped taking place, stop taking place, and some many other things start taking place. Mm. Uh, but I was wondering if in some point I would be able to resume this novel. I had to stop. And after two years, two years later, now I've just restarted this novel. Um, 
and trying to get each other again, you know, this book and me mm. after this long stop and with a new perspective too, which is useful in, in some sense and complicated in some other sense. The more complicated sense is the music, the tone. Um, so I've been rereading the text for quite a few weeks without writing, just trying to be sure that I close my eyes and I listen to the voice of the book, which is coming back uh, slowly. And now I think I will dare to write again because mm -hmm. I, the, 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 the music is with me, I think, again. Um, and it's a novel on on dictionary no not dictionary dictionary but uh, it's a book about the relationship between the meaning of words and our biography so mm. to speak okay and uh and it 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 takes place in spain which is a very unusual thing for me because I, I usually prefer to invent the place or going back to Argentina, mm. which is a typical, you know, thing to do when you're in, you're, you have lost your original roots. You find it difficult to decide where it will take place and it takes a lot for you to write about your new place. And I think that moment came, uh, has come. And my son, strangely enough, I started to, to write about the country where I actually live before my son was born. And now he was born here in Spain. Doing so makes much more sense because on the one hand, I will be a foreigner for my son. Um, he was born in a different country as me. But on the other hand, now I belong more than ever to Spain mm -hmm. because I have a Spanish son. I always say this you know that my mother was born in one country and died in other country and you can't choose between your mother uh cradle you say yeah cradle yeah your mother's cradle and your mother's uh tomb mm. and i'm you know trapped somewhere in the middle between these two distant spots and now my son seems to have chosen one of them, mm. one of those two shores. So I'm happy I'm writing about the country where my son was born. Excellent. All right. It's almost 2 a.m. over there, so I should let you go. Um, it is being... Oh, don't worry. He's, my son is just about to, to be awakened again. I mean, you will wake <laughs> up anytime, so don't worry. I won't sleep much. <laughs> Well, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you again. Um, I just love this book. It was so nice going back to something that I feel like is kind of like the birthplace of your uh, novels and your fiction, and it was just wonderful going back there. Um, so thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And I apologize for my English because I, I, I haven't spoken in English for quite a few months now. So um, I, I hope it didn't sound... Uh, impossible to understand but at the same time hey we've been talking about foreignness so there you go <laughs> th th there you go this is a foreign english too that's right all right well 
enjoy and enjoy your time with Telmo as he's little and at such a beautiful age and enjoy. Can I tell you a minimal story about him and, and foreignness before we say goodbye? Yeah. Well, he's beginning to talk, as I said, and um, he's, re he's discovering language and I am rediscovering language thanks to him. And the other, the other day I... I uh, to travel for a few days which i find very difficult to do uh, I, i used to love traveling and now i kind of get anxious when i have to leave our home and um so i usually you know uh, do the package with him he helps me with the suitcase we talk mm -hmm. about planes and you know i uh, to be sure that he belongs to the ritual of uh leaving somewhere else And I do the same thing when I go back home. So, so the suitcase is part of the ritual. Um, and um, and I was telling him about the, the the plane I was just about to take, and he said this short sentence that was so um, perfect and accurate. In a very, you know, he was like stumbling. His tongue was a stumbling and the phonetic was not precise, but the meaning and the syntax was there. And I was moved by what he said when I explained to him that I was taking a flight. He said, um, Avión grande, papá pequeño, which means big plane, small dad <laughs> and when he said that i said well i've been all my all my life trying to find a summary of my experience of a migrant individual <laughs> <laughs> and this is the sentence i was trying to find uh a plane which is too big for us or we are too small for planes mm. and so i said that's it son you understood better than me thank you for explaining me and and i left with a total sensation of having gotten yet another lesson lesson from my short master <laughs> what a lovely note to finish on i think last time we finished on my daughter coming into the room and laughing but oh my god you you're right yeah so it was like a typical the typical secondary character that <laughs> finishes in the best possible way the story. You're right. right. Yes. So, um, yeah, but what a beautiful way to finish on. So, yes, thank you so much for that. Thank you. I enjoyed it immensely. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me. Thanks once again to Andras Neumann. Bariloche is available now from Open Letter. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BeyondZeroPod, and you can email us at BeyondTheZeroPod at gmail.com. You can support this podcast by heading over to Patreon.com and searching for Beyond the Zero. We'll be back with your next episode very soon.